again, this is A City Unfinished. In this episode, we talk to sociologist Edda Bild. She explores the diverse and contested meanings attributed to Amsterdam's soundscapes, calling our attention to the politics of noise in the city. What exactly is a soundscape, though? According to Edda, that's a question that researchers in the field still grapple with. A key question is, is a soundscape a sound, a sum of sounds? Or is it more than the sum of sounds? Is the soundscape the fact that there was, you know, a, a child or whatever you could hear in the foreground and the background? Or is it something somehow more? It's not about like, it's not A plus B plus C equals soundscape. It's actually the interplay of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, you know, also like if you have a car that has, I don't know, the engine plays at 80 decibels and you add a truck on the same street... There's some of them is, of course, exponential. It's not like mm -hmm. 160. It's, it's something different. So it's, mm -hmm. it's very complex. It changes the experience. Understanding this experience, or how city users experience sound in public spaces, has been at the core of Edda's research practice during her PhD. I am trying to understand what is the relationship between how people act in a public space, in a park, in a square, wherever, that it would be considered public, including the streets and um, the sounds in those places. And to do that, we need to understand exactly what is the relationship between who people are and how they listen. And that's why it's very challenging, because it's, it's about trying to understand and to incorporate anything from individual characteristics of people to larger contextual elements and integrate them with trying to grasp the ephemeral thing that is sound. We asked Edda what cases her research focuses on within Amsterdam. It's focused on a couple of uh, parks in Amsterdam, Oosterpark and Sarfati Park, uh, traditional large parks in the city, what you might define as typical European urban parks, uh, large size, a lot of green, a little bit of concrete also, but mostly focused on a lot of trees, a lot of bushes, a lot of hedges. Uh, I also do field work in a, in a small square, which is around the corner from here, the Frederiksplein. That one has a wildly different morphology. It's a lot more gray. There are trees, but there's also a water fountain. So we're also talking about spaces that have very different, what you might call sound sources, which affect the experience. But there are also spaces that people use for different purposes, which ties back into my topic, which is use and behavior and activities and spaces. So a square like Frederiksplein is a very small square that people usually cross in their way of from point A to point B, from Utrechtstraat to go, I don't know, on the Sarfatistraat or whatever. But some people would stay there because there is a water fountain in the summer. It's quite lovely. There's trees that give you shade. It's refreshing, but it's a place where people would go and they would take a small break. Whereas the Sarfati and the Osterpark are large parks with large areas, green areas where people would barbecue. They would go there for a longer period of time. So all those things need to be understood well in the design and the um, explanation of the morphology of these spaces. And if you try to improve them, so to speak, 
then you need to understand exactly how people use them and what sounds they expect in such mm. a square, especially in an urban setting where, you know, I'm going to go in cliches now, but you cannot really close your ears as well as you can close your eyes, irrespective of how deep you put your headphones in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so an urban square or an urban park will forever be influenced by the things happening around it. In Oster Park, you have tram lines around it. Mm-hmm. You have busy streets. You know, there's schools around. So there will always be other sources other than just the chirping of birds. So all those things need to be taken into account. As you've just heard, Edda's research is also concerned with how to intervene in the soundscapes of these parks and squares in order to make them better. So we asked her, what makes a good park or a good urban public space in relation to sound? This is a very big debate that we're having in the soundscape. It's called the soundscape research um, field, if you want. I wouldn't call it a discipline. Um, There's different currents of thought here. There's a lot of people that want to, you know, this whole obsession with valorizing knowledge and making it it's implemented and it makes sure that cities are better. But then this whole business of good and bad is something that bugs me a lot because the discussions on sound already are on good and bad. It's always normative. It's the good sounds or the bad sounds. It's the quiet that everyone strives for or the noise that everyone wants to cancel out with their triple pane mm-hmm. windows. So we're always talking about good and bad. We're talking about these black and white ideas. Uh, here, here I am going in visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, the, the point here would, of course it's utopian, but it would be better to think of how to make cities more livable, how to make cities more enjoyable, how to make cities more adequate or more appropriate for A, what people want to do, B, for accommodating actually more types of people and their respective needs. And in that process, going beyond thinking what's good and bad and thinking about who it is good for or who it is appropriate for, mm-hmm. or what do those people actually need, then you can talk about more like equitable cities or livable mm-hmm. cities. Because in doing, if, if you just think in terms of good and bad, or you think in terms of noise or quiet, then you erase, you erase diversity. In order to move away from these generalizing normative ideas of good sounds and bad noises, and towards a more nuanced, context-specific understanding of what sounds city users desire, Edda explained the importance of including residents' voices and wishes into planning processes. According to her, that's not easy, though. And one of the reasons for this is how hard people find it to talk about sound in a way that goes beyond sounds that they absolutely hate. She told us about a project that grappled with this difficulty, a partnership between the Center for Urban Studies of the University of Amsterdam and an artist initiative called Soundtrack City. They focused on an Amsterdam square called Mr. Visterplein, and experimented with ways to crowdsource users' experiences of its auditory environment, as well as their desires. Here's Edda. Sort of joined hands for a project that was focused on Mr. Fisserplein, which is a tiny square around the corner from Waterlooplein. And it's a square that was recently developed, but it's a, I mean, to my opinion, a terrible square. It's a very loud square, and it's in the smack in the middle of an intersection. And they tried to visually make it attractive, but the auditory experience is so overwhelming it's so like loud and there's just so much input and stimuli that it's very hard for you to achieve the goals which I would assume people wanted for that space, which, was, which would be relaxation. The, the visuals and the auditory, are, they don't match. 
it's very incongruous and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And actually just getting there, like you have to cross a tram line, you have to cross a bike path. It's just, um, I mean, again, you could feel that they, the positive in, intention was there, but the execution, you're not sure exactly what they were aiming for or who they were designing it for because people in the neighborhood, then that's who we talked to. We did like in-depth uh, walks and conversations with people who live or work in the area. And, you know, everyone has different experiences. And for them, the park or the square is important because of what it represents like in their personal history so they go they go there or not because it reminds them of moments in their life but not necessarily because that it, it brings them joy or whatever the designers wanted to do so the idea was that we had these conversations with them asking them what they would want what type of things they would be missing given the context as it is now you know not assuming that we could stop traffic and make Amsterdam a car free zone but as it is now is there something that we could do extra to make it better. And then there were some suggestions and with the help of an architect, we tried to visualize it. And with the help of a sound artist, we tried to oralize it, which is to make things audible. So basically she took some recordings, she played with the recordings and it was simple things. Like people had suggestions, like just put some food carts or some coffee carts, you know, bring some more people sounds because can't hear the people. And it, people like to hear people. At the end of the Mr. Visterplein research project, which brought together citizens, researchers, artists, and architects around the question of how to design public spaces with sound in mind, they gathered their findings in an exhibit at the Amsterdam Architecture Center. Municipal policymakers were also present, but according to Edda, not the easiest group to engage in these conversations around sound and urban design. It is actually very difficult to convince um decision makers at the level of Amsterdam to actually engage in these conversations because they don't have the mandate for that. They have the mandate to do a noise map. A noise map, for everyone who is terribly interested in this, is basically, um, it is a model uh, based on measurements, acoustic measurements with a microphone that measures sound pressure levels, the infamous decibels that everyone hears of. And you, you basically model the sound of a city. And just on, on certain points, and you say, okay, this area, and, and it's, of course, represented in, like, in colors. The dark red is the one which is really loud, and the really loud areas are the ones where it's actually dangerous, uh, physiologically speaking, to live there. Or, because over, sounds over particular levels can actually cause irrevocable damage to your, to your body. The most common offender is the car sound, like car, trucks, all those things. But something else that is now they're, they're trying to grapple with is um, spontaneous sounds. Like, for example, when you're, you're, you have like the sweetest sleep at five in the morning mm -hmm. and all of, all of a sudden you hear a, a truck backing or backing up or, I don't know, a, a scooter or a motorcycle revving super loudly. Those are those type of sounds that are also very high, like very loud, but they also are sudden and they can trigger, like they can take you out of your, your REM sleep, and they can actually, if that happens on a regular basis, they can, they can induce anxiety. If it happens over years, they can actually, you know, give you heart problems. Um, some people related to diabetes. Like, it's a, it's a lot of, it can actually have, you know, irreparable damage on your health, and you might not even realize it. Mm -hmm. So constant exposure to certain sound sources, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, certain sounds over specific levels, that's why you're not allowed to build around airports. The concern with noise is very well justified. But there's also a lot of stuff happening under those 80 or 90 dB there. It's problematic. Because mm -hmm. there's also policy uh, at the European level a lot on quietness. In, the, in, in Amsterdam, there's um, 
regulations on housing having to have like a quiet side. Um, think of uh, the houses in the in the canal ring. Mm-hmm. They have to have like one of the sides, like the windows in one side, especially the windows for the bedroom. They have to be facing a part which has um, levels under a specific number of decibels. Because the idea would be that there must be a place in your house where you can rest. There must be a place in your house where you can close the goddamn windows and take a good night's sleep without being woken up. Edda explained that this expertise around acceptable sound levels in Amsterdam falls under the health department at the municipality. We asked her whether Amsterdam would be considered a loud city if you compared its sound maps to similar urban environments. Edda couldn't really answer that one. She hasn't looked at her rankings. But she did point out that there's a lot more to sound nuisance than decibels. It is also important to take meaning into account. Here's why. It also depends on the types of sounds. The offenders here in Amsterdam are scooters and, like, trolleys. Everyone hates those. Those are the most disliked sound sources, which is not necessarily the case in the city like Paris, where people have other complaints. So it's not just about which are the, you know, what are the levels and how well they uh, they respect that, but it's also about the specific sound sources and which are the sources that um, offend people to mm-hmm. large levels. And in the case of, uh, actually, of, of, of trolleys, those are actually, it's not even about the sound mm-hmm. level, it's about what the sound means. You know, a friend of mine refers to sound, refers to explaining sound via decibels, like referring to high cuisine through temperature. Does it matter? Yeah, if it's too hot and burning your tongue or incredibly cold and doesn't, you know, it, it does, it's, doesn't make sense, fine. But beyond that, it does not explain anything of the experience. And it's the same with sounds. Because sounds matter to the extent of what they mean. For what you do, for who you are, for what your, what your goals are, or what your personal experience is. So the sound of scooters, the sound of, of trolleys, they mean something, especially for maybe people in the center of Amsterdam. Scooters are usually associated with particular ethnic groups in the city. So when you bring your scooter in my canal ring, you're actually invading my space, mm-hmm. also orally. And you're reckless, you drive quickly, you make a lot of noise, and they're associated with specific ethnic groups mm-hmm. and ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the trolleys obviously mm-hmm. mean the invasion of tourists, the reckless and like careless people who just don't give a shit and like carry their trolleys everywhere. You don't have sidewalks anymore. Everything is occupied by tourists. You don't have a ho- affordable housing anymore. Touristification, blah, blah, blah. And here we are, the explosion of, of you know, people discriminating against uh, whoever is coming to visit the city. So mm-hmm. that is a... This is a common thing that has to be, you know, that is discussed, is the fact that it's not just about the levels, but it's also about what the sounds mean. There's a lot of conversation on, for example, levels of water. A fountain is actually loud. If you measure the sound pressure levels of a fountain, the decibels, it's very loud. It's maybe as loud as a car revving past you, but it's because it's a particular type of sound, has other properties, acoustically speaking, but also you associate it with other things, then that becomes a preferable or wanted sound. So that's why the conversation is a lot more complicated. But this is a, that's a very simple example, of course. But the meanings attributed to sound are not universal givens. So we asked her about what were the most controversial sounds, the sounds that listeners really disagreed on within her research. 
Well, I think an interesting topic was the sound of music within parks. Because people would like play guitars and stuff and some people would enjoy it while others wouldn't. So it's about, you know, what people expect from a park mm-hmm. to sound like. The sound of people is very controversial because within the same answers, you'd be like, oh, it's so nice to hear a conversation within those kids. That's always the challenge to actually deal with, uh, actually also in relation to the trolleys and the scooters, the offenders mm-hmm. are actually the people making the sound, right? Those are, the, those, that's the issue. And you don't, it's very hard sometimes to uh, control that, right? It's hard to control to make sure that there's no kids shrieking, that you want the parents having the conversation, but their kids not running around and, and crying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the most controversial or the most difficult one to actually figure out what to do with that. It's like, so what do you actually do when people tell you, I like conversations, but I hate when kids are running around and, and, and you know, screaming? Mm-hmm. What do you do with that knowledge? So far, Edda has referred to policymakers, the municipality, people with mandates to regulate sound in the city. Effectively, though, They're not the only ones intervening in the Amsterdam soundscape. Ordinary people do that too. Furthermore, it's not just people, but also the materials used in the built environment, the density of an area, or even the properties of a waterfront when it comes to the propagation of sound. Here's Edda. So when I'm referring to decision makers, I'm referring maybe to policymakers that might make any decisions on anything from materials used to that have an influence of how a space could sound like or in on actually creating a hedge or putting a planting a bush but i mean reality is the people that have to deal with the sound on an everyday basis and there are there are local small initiatives of course the people who have had enough of for example the sound of particular clubs or bars or whatever there's there was a few years back There was a pretty big um, community issue with um, Amsterdam Roost because how it was located, the sound was um, was being was very audible over the water and reaching the community on the other side of the water, and that was mostly an elderly people's community um, or retired, not elderly, as in they were not in assisted homing, but it was people who were retired and they could not sleep at night because of mm-hmm. the sound traveling very well over the water, and I think people from Roost did not anticipate. The, the properties of, of water to mm-hmm. do that. All these things also come into play with politics, right? With the agenda of the people who make the decisions. So some, in some moments, the complaints of the, of, the, of the citizens matter, or non-citizens, whoever, city users, but sometimes they matter more than others. I was just thinking in this framework of uh, livable cities, does it yeah. mean that we want to get rid of annoyance, contrary to like more classical concepts of urban as fundamentally annoying, and that's why political and provoking and, uh, I don't know, interesting, urban... Yeah. <laughs> oh, you will never get rid of annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> can we then cultivate good annoyance? Uh, yes, I think we can cultivate what I think is we can, we can use sound, or the senses for that matter, Uh, I think smell is also wonderful, or taste. Those are the, the touch, maybe a little bit less, um, but taste. Uh, sorry, taste, smell are very easy to use as a topic of conversation and exchange. They're because they're also common sources of annoyance. Also, the smell of others. You know, othering through smell is also mm-hmm. a common thing, not just othering through sound. 
this, the terrible smell of the immigrants in our neighborhood that cook all that weird food that smells weird. It's the same as the sounds of their weird languages. Um, so, but those ones, if moderated well in communities that are actually trying to, you know, create communication, not consensus, communication, it can be used as a topic for conversation mm -hmm. and for exchange mm -hmm. and for like healthy interaction. Mm -hmm. Annoyance you can never get rid of. But I do think you can't, no, you can't remove annoyance. No. But you also cannot talk of citywide annoyance. You also can't assume that annoyance is universal. Everyone hates cars. Not necessarily. People accept cars as a nuisance, but also because it brings them something good for their everyday existence. You know, you, you sometimes you, you choose the lesser of two evils. I mean, research has shown in France, for example, or in Paris, I think it was in Paris, that people prefer the sounds of buses and, and, and trams were always preferable to the sounds of cars for the same levels because they meant sharing, they meant using a public system, they meant contributing to the local infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. Whereas cars meant, you know, individual selfish assholes mm -hmm. who are just driving their own cars. So it's also about, yeah, picking your battles, I think. But there are specific types of annoyance that could be navigated and negotiated better if given the, the opportunity to exchange and to, to communicate. Mm -hmm. And sound is definitely a source of that type of annoyance. Of course, all the information that I've provided in this podcast and we've discussed about is mostly the experience of people that are able-bodied. So people that have hearing impairments or maybe visual impairments would definitely have a different experience and they would use sound in a different way, if at all. As usual in the City Unfinished, after a collective listening session, Lisa, Anastasia, Sarita and I had a conversation about it. Listen in. So what do you guys think? Is Amsterdam a loud city? Well, actually, when, when she mentioned that in the, in, in the talk, I actually thought, yes, Amsterdam is a loud city for me. But then if I do compare it with uh, Rome, for example, I do think, no, actually, it's not. <laughs> so it's also like very relative. What I um, kept on thinking about when, when Edda was, was talking uh, specifically about the, the sound of scooters and the sound of trolleys was uh, these two uh, anecdotes from like very personal experience. Uh, one is from uh, my very first days in Amsterdam when I moved to the city. And um, so I was living with a Dutch uh, woman. And I remember going home uh, one day and commenting about the fact, my cultural shock, uh, that, oh my God, scooters are riding on the bicycle lane. And I was asking, well, why is that? And her comment was, well, you should look at who's ride, uh, driving the scooter. And I thought, who is driving the scooter? I, I didn't pay attention. So uh, then, you know, I went, uh, well, I started paying attention to that and I, and I thought, Oh, now I do understand what she means by that, and 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 that's when I noticed that there was a very racialized understanding of the um, how do you call it the scooterists <laughs> or, or or like basically who is riding a scooter mm -hmm. um, and and who is associated to a certain kind of nuisance which can be like a sound nuisance or a traffic nuisance uh, in particular, and the and also the the trolley sound. Uh, I have another anecdote because when I moved to the house where I'm living now. 
the guy who was living there before me, the first thing he told me was, uh, just remember that from Thursday to Sunday, the only sound you're going to hear in the street is the sound of trolleys. <laughs> and I thought it was very interesting. He was complaining about touristification and about Airbnb spreading around the city. But actually, I have to admit that I never heard the sound of trolleys in the street in my neighborhood, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it also reminds me of uh, when I was first starting to learn Dutch. One of the first chapters of the beginner Dutch book that we were using was actually completely dedicated to uh, overlast, so uh, noise-related nuisance, um, and how to make a complaint. And, and then you would actually go through all of the, the steps that you, that you should take uh, if you're bothered by the noise that's being emitted by your neighbors or by someone listening to loud music on the street. So mm -hmm. I, th I thought that this, it was a funny way to, to reflect on the responsibility of uh, oversound nuisance. Mm -hmm. I love this idea of uh, politics of complaint because I feel that there are so many talks about like post-socialist, post-communist spaces as being countries of complaint ideology, where complaining on someone is one of the most important relationships that people establish with each other. So if we think of the context, other urban context, not necessarily Amsterdam, with a pretty high trust actually to state, municipality, or even capitalist owners of the city, <laughs> and we go to Russia where the trust is so low that instead of complaining to a municipality, I remember one of the first things that I've learned on sound politics was if you hear your neighbor doing something very loud, you take an axe and you actually create a noise by... Um, oh, yes. How do you call it? The even? Wall or you the would, pipes? Or yeah, the, the pipes, because okay. the pipes and but uh, like the heating system connects all yeah, apartments, yeah. and then the whole hall actually will hear the same noise, and then people would kind of manage each other's mm -hmm. soundscapes. And I feel it's very interesting to think then, yeah, what kind of assemblages are created in different political urban infrastructures? Mm -hmm. Who is complaining on whom, and how do we control each other with our soundscapes? Mm -hmm. yeah. What you just said also makes me think of. An aspect that Edda also touched upon a bit, that it's also never just about human bodies making noise, but about the materials exactly. and the how spaces are designed and how urban infrastructures are actually built in the city. Because I think one I think the, the roost anecdote of the bar that actually had a big noise problem with the neighbors because they didn't take into account, let's say, the acoustic properties of of water and how it traveled to the residential area even though it wasn't uh, very close by mm -hmm. and and I think it's in in a way we can we can place the responsibility on on loud people and let's say antisocial human beings but also maybe it, it, it's also an, an interesting political move if we think in terms of mm -hmm. urban infrastructure and the materials available and how that also of course is shaping these soundscapes so it's never about antisocial people and good citizens but also it's a much broader assemblage. This is fascinating. It also reminded me of a small empirical story from Kaliningrad, um, ex-German city, where the pavement stone from German uh, past was super important for people to keep. So they were actually ready to live with the constant noise of cars kind of jumping on the stones, boom, 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 <laughs> because it was associated with being and sounding like European city, like a medieval city. And if you put asphalt, then the whole imaginary of kind of belonging to this Western world goes away. Mm -hmm. A very different type of politics of sound, I guess. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, so I had to I had to think about a story from my fieldwork because um, I had an interview with a Dutch woman who has lived in a social housing apartment in the east of Amsterdam since the early 90s. And she told me about her living through uh, the renovation, so before, through and after the renovation. And she was telling me about how these apartments were so badly insulated that the cold would come through the windows. You could hear sounds from the upstairs or downstairs neighbors. And there were uh, smells from the kitchen traveling through uh, the apartment, through the building and, and from one apartment to the other. And um, and she had this story, this anecdote about the sound insulation being so bad that if some if a phone was ringing on the upstairs apartment in the upstairs apartment, for example, it was like hearing it in your own apartment. I think that this ties well with the discussion that we just had about you know not it's not necessarily about bad people doing bad stuff in their house uh, and bothering uh, neighbors, but it's more about the materials and and the whole structure of the building and how. In this specific case that I'm talking about, how, for example, class is inherent to the the architecture of the building because these buildings were built at the beginning of the 20th century. They were for lower working class people. So, of course, the quality of materials was very low and the insulation was also very low. One thing also that come, that came up in, in Edda's talk that I find interesting is also like the very intricate vocabulary that we have for noise or sound as a, as a nuisance or something negative. So sound, I would say that it's somewhat neutral in terms of value. Um, but noise, of course, has a negative connotation most of the time. Also, how the people who emit uh, noises that are unwanted are offenders or expressions like noise pollution, sound pollution, uh, and so on. I also, I, I actually think about, like, talking about this is that um, I find it interesting when you attach this quality of being noisy as mm -hmm. a negative thing to a certain group of people, how then... Um, that becomes a way to also control them or like they are like they make this noise mm -hmm. or they are noisy so they are a nuisance mm -hmm. and how uh, this becomes also a form of exclusion yeah, and other exclusionary mechanism yeah. and, and othering mm -hmm. yeah and then it reminds me also of the um, the question whether we still want to use and repeat this vocabulary of wantedness, unwantedness, desirability, undesirability. Because in private conversations, we realize that in policy papers, even this language has been repeated in order to exclude particular groups of people and other them through design. And um, that raises the question, do we want to repeat this language and vocabulary? And what kind of effects does it create, these concepts? Do you have any ideas of uh, what would be the alternative, what could be some alternative vocabulary that is not usually mobilized for sound, but could change the way that we talk about it in terms of politics? This is a fantastic question. <laughs> uh, yeah, thinking out loud, you know, like, I think that still in the desirable, undesirable, there is still this part of the question that is missing, which which is for whom is it desirable or undesirable? So, which brings it back to the particular sensory experience being situated, uh, being political, and being tied to identity. I also uh, particularly liked what Edda said about if we keep on talking about good and bad sounds, we are erasing the diversity, the sensory diversity of, of the city. Yeah, the, um, the presence of different sounds and noise, in a way, is also very much part of how we imagine an urban experience, 
right? Uh, or how we sure. think of cities and as opposed to maybe um, quieter spaces that are outside of what we consider urban. Well, like Edda said in the, in the conversation, you can't really completely get rid of the annoyance, but you yeah. can maybe play with it <laughs> and try yeah. to tailor it to different, let's say, sensor, like acoustic sensitivities. Yeah, and I, and I think if we'll put it even further, it's not that we cannot get, cannot get rid of this sound, noise, and annoyance with noise, but we also shouldn't because I can imagine noise being a part of, for example, political solidarity or noise connecting groups of people that otherwise maybe wouldn't be connected. That doesn't seem as something that social scientists maybe would strive for, for silence. And here the silence comes in. Thanks for listening to The City Unfinished. This podcast was made possible by a seed grant, awarded by the Center for Urban Studies of the University of Amsterdam. The talking, thinking, editing, and laughing <laughs> were done by Elisa Fiore, Anastasia Halonyova, Sarita Jarmak, and myself, Carolina Frosach. Original music and sound mixing are by Luca Di Maio. <laughs> <laughs>